And welcome to this episode of G220 Radio. This is Mike, and this is episode number 537. And title of this show is Whoever Covers an Offense Seeks Love, Proverbs 17. We'll be working through nine verses 9 through 15. And I'm here by myself. So hopefully you all had a wonderful 4th of July as we celebrate God's and God's providence, the creation of the United States of America and the freedoms that we have here to do even this show together to worship. We should recognize God's providence and the outworking he had towards us in this way. Ricky had uh, some extra time to work today. And so he was not feeling well to be on the show. And so I'm here by myself. So pray for Ricky as he battles the heat and with his job. And so we here at G220 have been going through Proverbs. We've been going verse by verse, verse by verse, and working our way through this 31 chapter book. And there's a lot of reasons that we should consider the Proverbs and that it helps us to live in God's world. It helps us to be obedient to the laws. We think about what it means to love God and to love our neighbors. We should really consider the Proverbs. It gives us, we've mentioned before on the show, short, pithy statements that allows us to think not only on the surface, but to also consider their depth, their wisdom that is set upon the law that God has given to us, especially the moral law, the Ten Commandments. As we as we think about those laws and how they play out in our lives, the Proverbs helps us to think about these things. They help us to be Christians who are better aware of God's God's will in our lives, how we are to love him, and especially in the Proverbs, how are we to then love our neighbors? And we see this when we think about kind of the main ideas we will look at today is kind of the foolish and evil people who hate God, who hate God's revelation versus those who have understanding, who are wise, who are prudent. And these are the language that the Proverbs use, the Proverbs use to bring us to think about what does it mean to be wise? We know very early that the beginning of the wisdom is the fear of the Lord, Proverbs 1, 7. 
So what does it mean to be wise? What does it mean to be ones who live in God's world faithfully? And that's what the Proverbs brings to us. And so we'll be working, as I mentioned earlier, in Proverbs chapter 17, verses 9 through 15. I'll be reading out of the ESV. And verse 9 mentions... Whoever covers an offense seeks love. But he who repeats a matter separates close friends. Here this proverb hits us right away. There is this contrast. We see this in the second part of the verse with the word but. And you have two people. You have the one who tries to cover an offense and then the one who kind of repeats the matter. Uh, another way we can kind of understand this is offenses. They seek to try to cover a transgression. I think when we think about this verse, I was quickly reminded of First Peter. And in First Peter, in chapter 4, verse 8, Peter writes, above all, Keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. I think when we, we look at these two verses together, there's one since the, the proverb is speaking on the one who has committed the offense. And this act towards the person he's offended, that he's transgressed, that he has sinned against. And in here in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8, we're to continue to love one another to cover because love covers a multitude of sins. That again, even in from our perspective, that I've done something wrong and I seek to to make it up. I seek to bring a back two and in a relationship that I've I've destroyed the relationship now in love I'm going to try to restore this relationship we can think about it in light of first Corinthians 13 starting in verse 4 love is patient and kind love does not envy or boast it is not arrogant or rude it is not cyst on its own way it is not Irritable or resentful, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. And so the person who seeks to cover the offense, who seeks love, is one who's realized they have made a mistake. They are doing what is opposite of what Paul tells us, 1 Corinthians 13. They, in this one, were we could say arrogant or rude, the prideful in which sin comes out of. So the one who covers an offense seeks love. He seeks to bring a resolution. He has torn apart. Now he tries to bring back together. I think this is again, opposite than what we see in church, kind of the church discipline in Matthew 16, where, or sorry, Matthew 18, where the person 
who's been offended comes to the one who offended him here. This is the, the one who offended is reaching out. He has realized what he has done. This could be the man in which Jesus talks about in Matthew five, who realized he has hatred or has done something to hate his brother. And he must go reconcile first before he gives his offering. He seeks to cover it. But he who repeats a matter separates close friends. So in the first part of this verse, this person seeking resolution, he's seeking reconciliation. He is trying to love the person whom he has offended in order to restore the relationship. Here in the second part of the verse, but he who repeats a matter is the one who doesn't seek to cover the offense. He keeps repeating the offense. He keeps doing it over and over and over again. And we see here the destruction that he brings. He separates close friends. I think this is implied that the one who repeats these transgressions, these offenses, separates those who are closest to him. It separates the the bonds of friendship that one has with another. I think it's important to think about our actions. And like in one sense we're going to be the one who repeats the matters. And there's going to need to be graciousness with our close friends. But I think the idea here is that they're not trying to seek reconciliation. They're they're not they don't think they've done anything wrong. And they keep on doing it over and over over again. Now we know even as the close friends though this person may sin against them 70 times seven there to forgive them. But it doesn't mean the broken relationship will always be built back together. And so verse nine really hits hard with our actions. When we have sinned against someone, when we have created an offense with someone? Do we seek to reconcile the relationship or not? Do we seek to love the person and show them that we care, that this, that we know what we did was wrong? Do we just keep living like it doesn't matter? I think that, and that just challenges us, especially when someone sinned and it hurts deep and they keep going at it. And then to find forgiveness is hard. And so to, to think about these ways in which we communicate 
with our close friends. And I think this is even more important. I mean, you have this idea of close friends, it's not just me and my buddies. But I think even in our most intimate relationships, including marriage, this isn't necessarily a verse about marriage, but it completely applies to it. Are we seeing our sins when we we sin against our spouse? Are we trying to love our spouse, especially again in First Peter, that husbands are to love their wives lest the prayers are hindered? We're sinful human beings. We will cause an offense. We will lack the self-control love wants us to have. And what are we going to do? Are we going to be ones who seek peace, seek reconciliation, like God has sought reconciliation for us and covering our sins by the blood of Jesus? Or are we going to cast them away? Are we going to keep repeating it these sins without remorse and which now drives this wedge between friends. So verse nine challenges us to think about our relationships with people and how we act within them. And verse 10 here continues this theme. It continues this idea of repentance with seeing our error. And then Solomon writes, a rebuke goes deeper into a man of understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. So this is someone we can think of Nathaniel coming to David and is, is rebuking them, is, is showing them, the person, their sin. And again, it's how do they react to it? A rebuke goes deeper into a man of understanding. Someone who is wise and receives a rebuke, it goes deeper. It it's not just this idea of like he sees it and understands it, but that it it goes into the depths of his soul. That he feels the rebuke. He understands the rebuke. And that this rebuke is going to change him. There's this, this implicit idea of repentance in there that goes deep to change that he sees his errors and he changes his way. But the fool in verse 10, isn't that way. It's a little bit of a hyperbole about the 100 blows, but that a rebuke and a fool does nothing. That's what it, what it is. That you rebuke a fool 
it's almost as if like you hit him a hundred times and he still doesn't get it. He still doesn't change his ways. He doesn't think what he's doing is wrong. The rebuke here signifies there's something wrong. So the, the question is, is that us? Is that me? Am I one who accepts rebuke? Who thinks about the rebuke given? Is there something there? Did I sin? Did I do something against God's law? Or do I recoil at being rebuked? Do I, in one sense, get in self-defense? My guards go up. My pride increases. And it doesn't matter. I'm not going to change my way. I'm going to continue to act in my foolish ways. This is the idea. A rebuke, either going deeper and changing the person to follow God's laws? Are we going to be the fool who receives the rebuke and doesn't change? Doesn't care? Shows no evidence of a repentant bone? Do you allow people to speak into your life in a way? And how do you receive it? This is really about how do we receive? And we have to place it into the rebuke. It doesn't, and it should be godly rebuke. When people are rebuking us for our actions and because we have sinned, how do we, how do we deal with that? And we, I mean, you just go to Twitter. I'm on Twitter every once in a while. I scroll through. I see what's going on. Now people tend to just rebuke people left and right. And whether they're, they're valid or not. And there's a sense in which, Pride runs deep in Twitter when you only have so many characters. But even there, if someone talks to you about your social media, either in person or even on social media, I mean, that's how do you react? Do you consider their claims? Even, I mean, even if it, even if they're wrong, even if the rebuke is wrong, it still changes you because you have to think about what they've said. You have to, to evaluate it on its merits. A fool doesn't. A fool just, it's whatever. 
I think, and so we have to, to receive the rebuke. And I mean, and just think about when Jesus rebuked, I was reading this in, in one of the commentaries. Peter had just denied Jesus three times. And all Jesus had to do was to look at Peter and Peter felt the rebuke of the Lord because he remembered what the Lord said to him. And it changed him. There was, there was something different with Peter in Acts than in the Gospels. And is, is this it? Is that the rebuke Jesus gives to Peter when he looks at him? And Peter's spirit is struck to the heart, knowing that he did what he told Jesus he wasn't going to do, even though Jesus said he was going to do it. His, his spirit may be willing, but he didn't do it. And Jesus looks at him and it changed him. And we see him being reconciled to Christ at the end of John. When John asks him to feed the sheep, to take care of the sheep, Peter is, is brought back in. And then when we think about Peter, as opposed to Judas Iscariot, who did feel the rebuke, but still act foolishly, he hung himself. He didn't deal with it. It was like the 100 blows. Nothing changed. So verse 10 brings us into how do we deal with rebuke? We're going to be wise and let it change who we are as we consider the sin that could be there and how to better express, better exemplify God's working in our lives? Or are we going to be like the fool who does not change? Verse 11 brings into further this kind of understanding of the fool. Where verses 10 through 15, kind of through the rest here, is really going to focus on the fool. And that when we think about it, verse 10 kind of hangs there as a way to remind us as we move away from it, the importance of repentance and to, to honoring rebuke. Cause in verse 11, Solomon writes, an evil man seeks only rebellion and a cruel messenger will be sent against him. We see here an, the evil man, and as we've talked about a lot already in Proverbs, this idea of an evil man is a, is a man set against God. And so this rebellion is not just kind of 
rebelling against government. It's rebelling against the King of Kings and the Lord of Lord. It's rebelling against the high king, the God most high, the just judge of all the earth. So an evil man seeks to overthrow God. And that's the only thing he seeks to do. He is in constant rebellion against God. And we see in verse at the end of verse 11, and a cruel messenger will be sent against him. So this person who is constantly rebelling against God, against what God has created, the natural order, God will send a cruel messenger against him. And he can't escape it. And if you may balk at this, you may be like, well, no, God wouldn't do that. Well, he did that to Israel. He did that to Judah. They continue, they continually rebelled against him. They continued to disobey the prophets when he spoke through them and told them to repent and told them to turn from their ways. He sent other nations. Set the Assyrians, Assyrians, set the Babylonians. He destructed the temple. He just he sent them to destroy the temple. And even the prophets are like, why are you sending evil people to judge us? And God tells us that he will judge them too. These stories there exemplify what Solomon is writing beforehand. An evil man seeks to overthrow God's rule of this earth and God will send someone after him. Because God is peace to overthrow God's rule would be to bring chaos. God is the one who took chaos and brought order to it. The one who rebels now seeks to bring about chaos. He challenges God and he will lose. He will not prevail. And so it again, when we we think about our lives, are we like the evil one who only seeks to overthrow God? And we see the message that God will come after us, a cruel messenger, someone who will who will come and judge you will come and he will come with the the vindication of God. And so when we we think about that, we think about how sin disrupts, brings about chaos. It brings us back to verse 10. Are we going to see 
sin as bringing chaos and repent. Take the rebuke of God's word, fellow Christians, and let that sink deep into our soul so we can change and glorify God. Or are we going to be like the fool who will not change even if they're beaten a hundred times? Are you going to the angel of life be the one who only seeks rebellion? Or are you going to listen to the rebuke from the Lord and change your ways? Verse 12 leads us into this idea of meeting these kind of foolish people. They, they bring about chaos. They, they bring about this rebellion and we're warned in verse 12, let a man meet a she bear robbed of her cubs rather than a fool in his folly. I mean, think about she bears. It's a female bear. They had bears in the Palestine area. They, Two meters tall, they weighed a lot. And I mean, we can even think about the black bear, or the grizzly bear. And <clears throat> what it means a bear is big, it's ferocious, and it's a she bear, it's a female bear who's been robbed of her cubs. Commentators are noting this isn't just like she's lost her cubs. The idea is that, that someone had taken them. That they, they've stole them. And now this bear is angry and ferocious and is willing. And in one sense, we can probably get the image of will be willing to do anything to get her cubs back. And thinking through this, there was a time up, I was whitewater rafting in Yellowstone. And we knew, we knew never get in between a, a bear and her cub. That's just never what you do. So we're whitewater rafting and there's a cub on the side of the river. And our rafting guide was jokingly saying, Oh, it'd be really funny if the mother bear was on the other side. Now, this isn't this is a funny matter. We're all like 14, 15 year old boys. We're like, no, we don't want to die now in a white water raft because we got in between a bear and her cub. Luckily, thankfully, that was not the case. Because even though we're on a raft and we're in the river, it's not going to stop the bear from getting after us, going after us. And it was a terrible feeling in these moments. What if it does happen? There is a sense in which we need to be prepared for that. And as, as ferocious as bears are, the psalmist is saying it's better than a meaning a fool in his folly. that meeting an angry bear robbed of her cubs is better than a fool is somewhat unfathomable. 
And yet, I mean, the word is true. And so to think about what makes this, what makes a fool worse? Well, it's when we confront a fool, when we when we rebuke him. So going kind of back to verse 10, when we rebuke a fool, they get angry. They maybe even attack us. They may even, in one sense, in their hatred, actually leave their heart and attack us to kill us, to do, to get rid of the one who rebukes. I mean, we've seen, and you probably have seen, you have faithful brothers preaching the word on the streets. And someone's convicted. They're, they're getting challenged in their worldview and God is presenting them poking their conscience and they get all upset and yelling, try to be destructive. They may even be destructive. They may destroy your signs, destroy your stuff. This is the idea that the proverb is talking about that their their fierceness their anger is now upon you and seeks to destroy you and so in that sense it's better that you meet a she bear than a fool And to, to think about the reaction of the fool. Again, this fool here seeks rebellion. There is this connection with it. The fool here in his folly seeking rebellion against God is now acting out. He's creating this chaotic situation with destruction, with fierceness, violence. They will not stop. Not until God changes their hearts. And so thinking through how that works out, just even in our evangelism, and especially, I mean, in American life now, there is this great hatred toward the things of God. We openly in America, and I know, I started this show saying that we should thank God for America and we should, but we should also recognize that the nation has accepted sins as being not sins. You think of the reaction of Roe versus Wade and some of the protests that have come out from it. Think about 
the entire month of June being celebration of the destruction of God's ethics for sexuality. And when you speak against them, the fierceness in which those who oppose or what I guess for those who agree with these things, agreed with the LGBTQ, who agrees with abortion on demand whenever you want, they are the ones who are attacking. And they're not, the, the rebukes are not going to come apart from the work of God. And so, and thinking even more on this in verse 13, we see that if anyone returns evil for good, evil will not depart from his house. So these, these foolish people, these evil people who are only seeking rebellion, we see here that if instead of returning good for good, they return evil for good. Well, evil is never going to depart from their house because they, unlike God, they cannot give good gifts. I mean, isn't that the story Jesus tells us? Which father would give rocks instead of bread? Well, terrible fathers, bad fathers, evil fathers would. Well, no, they're not going to, in one sense, willingly give their children rocks instead of bread. But verse 13 tells us that the person who does do those things, who is the ones who give evil to good, they, they don't know how to give good. They return evil. They have taken what is good and they have twisted it for themselves. And their punishment is that evil will never depart from their house. That when someone is so wicked that they cannot recognize good and must always be proceeding on with evil, evil will dwell with them always. It will never leave their house. Again, God, give them the warning that God will visit the iniquity of the fathers to the father's children, their children, children, and to the fourth generation. Those who, who reject God, who, who go after what is evil, who are in rebellion, it's not just that evil is with them, but it will continue down generationally think of the line of Cain as the example you have Cain who kills his brother Abel and he is committed to be a wanderer and he's going around and then you have Lamech who is more evil than Cain is as the seventh from him and that's juxtaposed with um I'm forgetting names now. Um, 
is juxtaposed with um, the seventh of Seth's line, who walked with God, Enoch, who walked with God, and then was no more. And so when we, we think about when someone's heart is so wicked, or as Jesus would say, their eyes are full of darkness. Evil, it will never depart. And we, we've covered this in other ideas, but it's the fact that evil creates chaos and consequences and evil compounds upon evil. And so thinking through these things and thinking through these ideas that we see here, here again, this evil one is the fool who will not listen to rebuke. And now they're caught in an evil with, in one sense, the how this proverb says it is that something they can't get out of. Now, obviously, proverbs are not prof they're prophetic in that they tell us what will happen. But just because someone returns evil for good doesn't mean they can't be saved. These are principles. So we shouldn't expect that those who return evil for good, that evil dwells in their house in their entire life. That that's how they act, and that's how they are treated, and that's how others treat them. Apart from God's grace. This rebuke, this the consequence of this should be the rebuke in which drives us. Just as Jonah preached the coming judgment of God and the people of Nineveh turned so much so should we when we think about are we returning evil for good is there something there that i have done and to be the one who recognizes the rebuke of god's word and seeks to cover his fence at verse 14 it continues these ideas it continues the, the problem of evil and what evil brings. And it says, the beginning of strife is like letting out water so quick, so quit before the quarrel breaks out. Let's think about the imagery there. That the beginning of strife is like letting out water. Kind of in my in my image, as I was thinking about this and kind of mulling over it before the show, it's like watching a dam break. It's a little bit of water over the top, a little bit of erosion, and all of a sudden, the dam is gone. It's broken. It's been breached. This is the idea. A, the beginning of strife is like that water coming over 
the dam. Just starting. So you need to quit it. Because if you don't, it's going to destroy. Now we're called to to be anger and sin not. We're not to let the sun um, fall on our anger. And in First Timothy, we're told not to be quarrelsome people. Or Second Timothy, um, sorry, Second Timothy, chapter two, tells them not to be quarrelsome. Some that some do. So, so when we we're recognizing quarrels, are we ones who recognize the strife that is creating, and are we stopping it? Are are we, in one sense, going back to verse nine? Are we seeing our own offense and repenting of it, and seeking to love the person? As James will tell us, strife kind of strife comes up because of envy, because we have not and we want. And it doesn't have to necessarily be physical things. It could be the pride of life, honor, prestige. As what Jesus would say, maybe the Pharisee that goes and sits at the head of the table. So the beginning of strife is like letting out water because when you start to do it, it leads into destruction. But if you could quit, if you quit before it breaks out, if you stop before it gets to the point in which water is letting out, you've saved. You, you've brought peace. Peace. You, you, in, in one sense, you've kept your friends close. You've kept the relationship. So the, the verse calls us to think about our interactions with people. And how do we go about understanding kind of the, the devastation of strife? And it's destructiveness. And it's coming out of it. And it's and when we look at about it, it is the fools who do not understand and pull back and stop. Again, in, in this idea of rebellion, God is a God of peace and order. So to be in a rebellion against them, as verse 11 says, would be the one who creates strife. And so as we think about these interactions, we think about, again, how do we deal with other sinners? Do we act in sin or do we act as a man of understanding who's been changed when recognizing the, the sinfulness of rebellion, rebellion against God? 
And our final verse for tonight is verse 15. The Spirit says, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Now this verse sets off two types of people. Um, Now it's very well that they may be at times combined in a person, but the destruction of the sentence identifies two people, those who justified the wicked and those who condemn the righteous. The idea to justify the wicked is to say what they're doing is not wrong. To say that, let's just use an obvious example, those who do not condemn or justify Hitler's actions in killing off the Jews, they're they're sitting there and they're saying, well, no, Hitler didn't do anything wrong. He was completely fine. So he's the one. He justifies them. He he writes it off as saying that's what's wicked is good. And then the other person here, he who condemns the righteous, is one to say to look at someone who has done nothing wrong and charge them as one who has done something wrong. And that these two men, these two ideas, are abomination to the Lord. Why are they abomination? Why does God hate them so much? You know, the idea of abomination. Well, it's because God delights in goodness. And he is, and he judges wickedness God calls us to be holy as he is holy he calls us to be people who reflect who he is God does not delight in the wicked because the wicked is something God cannot do God cannot sin God can only do his holy will. He can do all things in his holy will, which means he cannot sin and he cannot justify the wicked because that would be saying that sin is right and that holiness is wrong. But God is his ju- just judge of all the earth. I think verse 15 really then plays a part when we think about the trial of Jesus. When the Pharisees judge a righteous man so that they can kill him, did Jesus do anything wrong? No. In fact, they have to change their story 
about who Jesus is when going to Pilate to make it where he would be against the Pax Romana. That he's he's leading a rebellion, which was somewhat common in their age. They, in one sense, justified the traitor Judas. They gave him money. They said, do what is right to bring him here. And then they condemned the one who knew no sin. Condemned him to the cross. It's an abomination to the Lord. Now, as we know in Acts 2, Peter tells us that that was the plan of God in order that he may raise him up, that we can be sure of our salvation because God raised Jesus from the dead to justify us, to show us that there is now no condemnation, that not even death holds power over us. But that's that's what happened. And God would judge the Jews and the destruction of the temple. He would scatter them. Now, Paul gives hope that God will save them and he wants them to be saved. But that generation acted wickedly. They were in rebellion against God. Even if Jesus isn't God's anointed, they condemned a righteous man to die who had at least publicly no sin. And yet they killed him so that we as unrighteous can be saved. And I think we see this today, even in our own country, when we think about those who justify abortion, the wickedness against the unborn, the genocide on African-Americans that it produced produces and then condemns those and tries to force people out who speak contrary to that show themselves in rebellion towards God and they are an abomination from the Lord and he is against them and he will judge them accordingly But we also must remember that today's the day of salvation. That while there is still breath in their lungs, they can be saved. They can experience the power of God and a rebuke that goes deep into them, changing their heart of stone into a heart of flesh, bringing them out of the darkness and into the light. That's the gospel message. When we think about the rebellious people 
who only seek rebellion, who seek go after to overthrow God's dominion. They were once like there. We were once like that. We were enemies of God. And yet he saved us by the power of his gospel. Sending a rebuke that is deeper than any rebuke that we can give. And seeks to overcome our offenses with love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever shall believe him will not perish but have eternal life. And the love that he gave, he demonstrated to us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we think about the, the righteous, the man of understanding, the one who seeks to overcome their offenses with love, seeing their errors only comes about from a changed heart. And that we should consider the destructiveness of sin and that it will continue to bring about more sin. Proverbs leads us to the gospel to consider how can I be a man wise? And it is done by trusting in the Savior by repenting of our sins and finding grace and mercy at the foot of the cross. And the message is the same. It's the good old gospel. The one who saved Peter, the one preach that he would preach at Pentecost The one Paul gave to the Philippian jailer, the one Paul wrote about to Romans. The gospel brings us out of our foolishness and into wise, and he calls us to grow deeper. So this has been episode number 537. This is Mike, and for Ricky, who was not able to be with us, thank you for joining us. And join us next week, Tuesday at 9 p.m. on Facebook, YouTube, and Podbean. Or you can get the po podcast on Podbean. Thank you for listening. May God bless you. Have a good night.